0: Welcome to the Channel Champions Podcast, powered by Evolve IP, hosted by Zach Anderson. Today, we'll explore the always evolving landscape of the IT, telephony, and communications channel. If you are a trusted advisor, strategist, IT consultant, or sales engineer, this one's for you. Today's guest is... to the Channel Champions Podcast. This is... I believe episode 17. My guest today is John Arnold of J. Arnold Associates, and I am very excited to have you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Very good, Zach. Uh, um, this is our first uh, uh, video outing together, and I'm sure it's going to be fun, and I hope we can do a bunch more. And folks, if you don't, you, you'll find out eventually as we get talking, but you know, uh, the common thread here beyond the tech stuff is music. So, Zach's got that nice shiny green drum kit in the background and my piano is right over there and my big vinyl collections over there and my guitar is up there. So that could be another episode.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just uh, be looking out for the, uh, the album release from John and I, so (laughs) (laughs) no, but we'll, we will definitely have some, uh, future collaborations together. Um, just in the, the few conversations we've had, uh, we can go on forever, obviously, as uh, musicians generally do. But I'm really excited because I want to get to know you. And, um, you know, for those that don't know you, although I don't know how they wouldn't, I just wanted to kind of get into some backstory and kind of, you know, go through how how you got started in the industry and um, what you got going on. But let's go back in time. I believe it was 2001 when you kind of entered the the channel space or the technology space. Which one came first for you?
1: Yeah. Tech first channel later, for sure. You know, there's no, there's no straight line to any of this stuff. Uh, let's just say, uh, I, I, this is what, you know, probably third career type of thing for me prior to getting into tech as an analyst. I had, um, I re- had, I ran my own boutique market research business for about, I don't know, 15 years just doing B um, 2 B2B that would be business to business. So, industrial markets. uh, I did projects in every industry imaginable. So I've got a good background in that whole B2B environment, which is very much what the tech world is about. Mm -hmm. When you're talking in the vendor space, like in the channel spaces, we are because it is strictly B2B. The consumer side of technology is a whole other space. But, you know, we're not selling to consumers. And the big difference between consumer marketing and B2B marketing is you know, the buying process is much more complex, the buying, you know, the, the dollars are much higher, the frequency of buying is much less, and it's a much more sophisticated and longer cycle, mm-hmm. right? In the consumer world, you can make buying decisions in about a third of a second, and that's right. usually all it takes. But this world is much more involved, much more relationship-based. And so, you yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, know, it's different skills you need. To to be an effective marketer in B two B, so I I have an MBA in marketing. That's kind of my academic pedigree. So I'm a business guy first, tech guy second. And out of that market research world, that gave me a really good grounding in analysis and working with numbers, and you know that, all the skills that come around that. And then eventually um, things change at my end, and I got an opportunity to go to one of the analyst firms in our space called Frost and Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And they're still uh, going strong and they were expanding into Canada. I live in Toronto and they were coming to the, to that market and they needed uh, a business guy. They wanted someone to come in and help build the practice. So I was one of the early employees and I, I kind of, we worked out, you know, it worked out that I said, okay, I'll move on from my practice and give this uh, a shot. And uh, that's how I got exposed it was, yes, all tech. Hmm. Uh, Frost is different from most of the analyst firms, though, Zach, because they do work in every industry, hmm. biotech, uh, pharma, automotive. So they're very diversified. So when, when, when 9-11 hit and the tech market kind of went off a cliff, a lot of the analyst firms really struggled in that space because they had no other avenues to make money. Frost could still make money in more mature industries that weren't as impacted by tech. So good for them. Anyways, I stayed there for four years and I learned, basically, I got thrown in. I didn't learn. I got really thrown into the VoIP space when their lead analyst decided to leave last minute. Hmm. And uh, I was brought in to build the team. And then uh, they said, well, we had to lay everybody off because the tech markets is really tanky now. So you're going to be the VoIP guy. And, and all they told, that's all they told me. And I asked them, well, what's, so what's VoIP? And they said, you'll find out. So (laughs) I found out. And so, you know, the cool thing, Zach, about this tech space is you don't have to be a genius entering the market to be in it. Mm -hmm. Like VoIP, when it started, was very disruptive. Nobody knew what the hell it was, much like the buzz with ChatGPT today. No one really understands it, but we can't like turn our eyes away from it. Anyways, it didn't take long. I became like one of the top analysts in that space in about two years. So I figured, okay, either I'm a really fast learner or not many people are paying attention to this market. So if an outsider can come in and do okay, I, so that just kind of got you to first base. I and mean, then I said, oh, I can steal second now. So I stole second and third, and here we are. So you just keep on that path, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't, um, what I always say to people is nobody goes to school to be an analyst. In, in the technology space, there's no blueprint. If you want to be a financial analyst, like that coming out of my MBA world, yeah, you need certain credentials to do that kind of work, but tech analyst, no. So everyone has a different backstory coming in in this space. And if it works for you, like anything else, you keep doing it. And so it's worked for me and I've kept going. And, and, um, the thing that I, this is good, maybe advertising for other people looking to become analysts. But mm-hmm. you got to have analyst curiosity for sure, and you got to be able to adapt. So, just when I thought, "Oh, okay, I figured this VoIP thing out," I, you know, uh, there's a lot of business there, and opportunity. Then new things come along, so you, you can't just like it was okay twenty years ago. You could just know VoIP, and that would be enough, mm-hmm. right? And now it's just like it's such a small piece of my world. Everything that's come along since, and that brings us to like companies like yours, Evolve IP, where you know VoIP all of a sudden now integrates with video and text, and now the world of unified communications kind of it gets invented. If you haven't been around that long, you may not remember that before UC, there was a platform, a solution called unified messaging, mm. which was this, and this was radical at the time when messaging from like emails and phone messages can be integrated with voice. So that's why they called it unified messaging. Mm. That was a huge step forward at the time, but they weren't integrated. Mm. Now UC takes it to another level. Just when we figured out UC, it's becoming commodified now. Everybody has UC. Now contact center is kind of creeping into the marketplace and cloud is pushing everything into one area. And now you've, yes, AI is the next layer on top of that. So before you know it, you've got to know like you know, at least 10 different type of, trends and technologies because they're all connected Mm -hmm. and where it ends i don't know zach but uh, (laughs) what i do know we're all human we can only do so much and until ai replaces all of us you got to put some fences around what you what you really do know Mm -hmm. and what you don't know so there's plenty of stuff i know nothing about and don't want to know about but i i do pretty well just focusing on these areas now just trying to understand them Explain them, help the vendors understand and communicate the value of this stuff. Because nobody really knows everything about these things. And, um, it's, um, you bring a different perspective to it. Just the last item I want to say here, Zach, is because I've been doing this a long time. Younger people who are in the tech space, you know, that's going to be the dominant demographic. They don't come from the world that was like pre internet, right? When telephony was a really, complicated thing and the standards and the uh you know all the uh, all the rules and regs were very clearly defined so there was you know you had to know a lot of engineering stuff to do telephony well but a lot of those problems have been solved now you throw everything into the cloud you just point and click you have you have no code low code anybody can invent and do anything now so you know because the road has been paved by all of these, you know, legacy and first generation internet technologies, you know, and standards like SIP. Without those we couldn't do these things. But now here we are. It's just like now you kind of bridge the B2B world to consumer in the sense that as end users, as workers in the workplace, we can get anything we want out of the cloud now. We mm-hmm. don't need IT to give us all the tools. So it's a very – the dynamics to this stuff are really interesting because it's so accessible. So that's what I refer to in my – wearing my economics hat of we've shifted big time from what we used to call the economics of scarcity, right, where everything was expensive, complicated, to what we call the economics of abundance, Mm -hmm. silicon economics, where everything is free, very inexpensive, very malleable, so anybody can use it. Mm -hmm. That changes kind of the way anyone – individual or organization, you know, uses these technologies. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I'm here, uh, how I got here as an analyst is my journey, and everyone's going to take a different one. And bottom line is, if you even know a tenth of what I'm talking about, you can do it too.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the uh, abundance concept is definitely an interesting one. <clears throat> I actually just did a uh, another episode with Chris Gamble. He's a uh, He's the CEO and founder of Caliber Solutions out of Texas. But he is, you know, a lot of what he uh, his strategy today is he calls it the paradox of abundance. And it's essentially what you're talking about, like, which is why I think advisors are so much more valuable today than they ever were. Because there is, you know, just navigating the, the various solutions and technologies out there. Um, is difficult, <clears throat> especially considering, you know, put, you know, put yourself in the in the shoes of, a, of the IT leader at an organization. And now you're tasked with like, you know, advancing your technological strategies and, you know, initiatives and like, how do you do that? And, you know, and, and we we already know that they're understaffed, and they are overburdened. And so that's, that's why I think the the role of the advisor is so much more valuable today. But, you know, it's, it's just an interesting, it's interesting for sure. Anyway, I want to go back to Frost and Sullivan. So you were an analyst and you you were tasked with VoIP. What exactly were you digging into at the time that kept you curious and kept you hungry and like moving forward? And because ultimately, you know, you were the best one there. So what, what was it about your time there that kept you so engaged? Sure. So
1: it's like a lot of things. Um, when you're in at the beginning of something, you kind of form an attachment to it because VoIP really had only become commercialized as a technology in 95, I believe, before I was involved in this industry. Um, and But once it started to kind of find its way into the business com- communication space, because prior to it kind of coming on the scene, it was really what you'd call a hobbyist technology. It's just that there were people uh, who were tinkering with this idea that you could use the internet as a way to have commu- uh, conversations. You could talk. You could do typing with email, of course, right? That was easy and it was free. Why can't we do voice? Which is why it's called voice over internet protocol. So IP is the protocol that allows that to happen. So the fundamental shift, uh, not to get too technical, but the transition from what we call legacy telephony, which is based on what they call circuit-based technology, circuit switched, <coughs> excuse me, where every phone call has a dedicated connection. Keeps it really secure, very hard to hack a PSTN call because it has that private connection, but Networking-wise, that's a very inefficient way to scale because now you need a dedicated connection for every single call. That's why it becomes so expensive. And of course, telecom was such a heavily regulated industry until '84. So when I started doing VoIP, it started to started to to get looked at as, hmm, this is one of those. Could it maybe? Could it work? Could this actually be a substitute for regular? That's kind of so. It's an exciting place to be because back then. You know, AT&T, Verizon, you know, coming out of deregulation, these guys ruled the world. I mean, it's hard to understand just how dominant they were. Yes, they're dominant today, but the early days of VoIP, it poised a real existential threat that, wait a minute, if you can route phone calls over the web for free, that screws our business model big time. Uh, So there were, there was a lot of threat there and danger posed by VoIP. So it was a very, it was much more disruptive than, than being innovative. And so the hero, the poster boy for this was Nicholas Zenstrom at Skype. So Skype still survives, right? Um, It's gone, it's been an orphan many times, but Nicholas was the first guy to really break through and champion this idea. You can do calls over the web and, People like to talk. That was his catchphrase, and why? You know, people want to save money. Why would you want to spend all that money on a phone call when you can do it here? So, for those who remember, before Nicholas got famous with Skype, he had this music sharing business called Kazaa, Hmm. and far more threatening to the music industry than VoIP was to the telephony industry. And this was one of the early generations of, you know, I wouldn't call it pirating, but you know. An application where you could get music off the web, you'd bypass the need to buy it, right? And, and, you know, pay your dues and all that stuff, which is, again, the business model that the music industry was built on is just as lucrative as the model that the telephony industry. Difference is the music industry wasn't regulated. Mm-hmm. So you could come along and do this stuff. And of course, that's led to all kinds of, you know, piracy issues and, you know, all that stuff. And it, then it's all obviously it spilled over to uh, video and the movie industry, as soon as IP networks became robust enough that you could stream, you know, the, the common thread to everything we're talking about, Zach, is real-time communications, voice right. and video. But because it's real-time, it's gotta be like, now it's gotta be, it's, you can't have these big glitches and hiccups and latency and jitter and all that stuff, echo, it's gotta work. So once IP networks started to get big and strong enough that they could do video, that those models started to take off. And then here we are today. Now of course, nobody owns anything anymore. Nobody buys music except people like me, but (laughs) we just stream, we just consume. So so that streaming model like SaaS for everything else has just become an on-demand business. So the music industry has pivoted and reinvented. The movie industry has, it's all gone to streaming now. It, but this wouldn't be possible if the net, these IP networks and the broadband, et cetera, all that infrastructure, if it couldn't support it, you know, that's the big impetus behind 5G for mobile, because that's where people spend their time on their phones. They want to watch their movies and sports games and whatever. Mm-hmm. To, if, so if you can stream really well there, you're, you'll happily pay for that convenience. So so VoIP was the same. So what, what got me in and kept me staying, Zach, was I was kind of at the beginning of a revolution, Right. And to see it run its course um, through perseverance, maybe a little good luck, maybe a little chutzpah as we like to say, I got into kind of the inner circle of the industry very quickly. Hmm. And uh, I'll point out one guy in particular, his name is Jeff Pulver. He's still on the scene, but he put together these conferences called Vaughn, which is voice on the net. Hmm. Unfortunately, he couldn't use that acronym in Canada because Canada already had the Victorian Order of Nurses. (laughs) Go figure, right? Bummer. Bummer, exactly. (laughs) Anyways, Jeff single-handedly created, like, he was the source. He became the center of the industry. He was a driver of regulatory change, like the, the serious stuff, the things that give it life. So I was very involved in that part of the universe very quickly. So I kind of was, when, when you're inner circle, you don't generally like, you don't generally leave unless you have to. Right. So I stayed with it and then went through its various iterations. So that's what kept me in it. Once VoIP kind of matured, sure. I could have just walked away, but you know, telephony is still central to everything we do. Right. And VoIP is just one way you can do telephony. So it's just now it's just matured into this broader world of comms. And so you know, I've got a good grounding in all of those modes. And uh, that takes us to the UC world. And, um, you know, my business is driven by my relationships with the vendors because they're the ones who hire me to help them educate the marketplace. So the UC market is pretty rich. It's, you know, it's fast moving. There's a lot of business out there. So yes, they work with me all the time to educate the buyers. And of course, to work with the channels to help them sell successfully so channel came later right you you know it's just the ecosystem another layer of who's out there how does the business get done right and so there and uh as i said at the top you know i'm not a technical analyst but i'm really good at understanding the business level stuff what do end users need to know what do buyers need to know you know if you want to have an engineering discussion about how it should run that's not me you know (laughs) But the flip right. side, Zach, last thing I'll say is the flip side is engineers are great at talking to other engineers, <laughs> but don't let them try to explain something that you and I need to understand. And that's where people like me fit in, that you plug in right away. I can translate that into something that people can actually
0: relate to who are not engineers. So. Mm-hmm. Almost sounds like you're a salesperson.
1: Well, I'm, I'm enabling companies to sell and I'm enabling buyers to make better decisions the only thing i'm really selling is my my communication skills and of course my integrity Mm -hmm. right the thing about being an analyst is um i don't tout companies i talk about technologies and solutions and you know benefits um so what i'm selling is my ability to convey that that you know by association makes your brand stronger helps you connect better with your buyers and your customers. So, mm-hmm. but I don't. I don't sell products. I don't make money from companies that sell products. That's not my model. I'm. I have to be viewed as independent. Otherwise, I don't. Yeah, my integrity is everything. So That's true. You know, you have to like say, okay. Well, if you want a third party, like any vendor, can write a white paper or write an article and tell their story, but no one's going to believe you <laughs> because it will sound like it's a sales piece. If I come out and say the exact same thing. They'll tend to believe me because I'm independent. So that's what they're getting, you know. He, now you can hire freelance writers all day long who don't have a brand or any any. They don't drive anything, and that's a great way to get a lot of content out there for nothing. And then of course ChatGPT can write articles for you all day long, but you know no one's going to really listen to that. So right. that's where the analysts come in. And I'm part of a small tribe. I'm not the only one out there. There's a, maybe ten of us dozen of us who are independents who are truly you know in that analyst space uh out there zach so yeah we we play a pretty vital i think a vital role in the ecosystem because a lot of us have been doing this a long time and five ten years from now we're all going to be retired i hate to say it but we will and i'm not seeing a lot of younger analysts coming up behind us who are going to go down this independent route and i'm only putting up this out as a bit of a caution folks because. When folks like us leave and no one takes our spot, you're only going to have Forrester, Frost, IDC, Gartner, Omdia, whatever, that's going to be it. So you're not going to get anybody who's going to return your calls so quickly, unless you're a subscriber. So mm-hmm. I think we play an important role, but I, I just hope there are more younger analysts who come in and try to follow our, our footsteps. Cause I think it's a, an important part of kind of what keeps the space honest.
0: Yeah, I think that's true also of the agent community as well. Like, you don't see a lot of uh, younger folks, like, um, you know, the millennial, young millennials uh, coming up into the channel space, which is interesting. I almost am curious, like, just thinking about what that's going to look like. What does that mean? You know, does that mean, I mean, it's especially considering like all of the, acquisitions and mergers that happen with all the private equity that's already entered the channel, like, is everything just going to get gobbled up by bigger businesses or, you know, these sort of super agents that we keep seeing pop up? Like, you know, what is, what is the next generation agent look like? I I think, you know, I don't know. It's yeah, I'm with you on that.
1: And and, and it applies to every kind of, you know, every, every sort of species in the, in the swamp, because it applies to channel as well as it does to, you know, certainly on the sales side, it, that's absolutely true for what we do is, you know, in the thought leadership realm. Um, if we go, those independent guys go, I mentioned SCTC earlier, Society of Communications Tech Consultants, similar there. Most of them are north of 60. No one's coming in behind them because telephony isn't sexy. You know, the young people don't—they don't get attracted to that, so they don't come in. I just spoke at a at a conference last week in in, in the U.S. Uh, for the for the um, energy industry for the for the um, uh, co- cooperative. So the 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 the, um, the energy producers who serve rural communities are small. The big utilities serve all the big cities and stuff. But it's the same thing there. Their ranks, you know, no one power. Generation isn't sexy for young people. So they're not drawing those, that generation in to replace the engineers and the people who built the grid, you know, 50 years ago and know it intimately. So there's a institutional knowledge base there. Same thing with us as independent analysts. When we go all that stuff I told you about the early days of VoIP, no one's going to, no one cares about it. But if you don't know that you're, you're going to have a very lighter, you'll have a much lighter perspective on what's happening because like everything else, Zach history repeats itself, you know, the wave that VoIP road going up and down tech cycles are, they're, they're always the same. So right now it's happening with chat GPT. It'll be the same effect a year from now. It could be something entirely new. It might be VR, AR XR type of stuff, right. To, to That's going to again, reinvent the world. Mm. And So we kind of know how the movie's going to end. We've seen it before. And uh, so, you know, again, if all you have to choose from is Gartner and IDC, um, you're going to get a much narrower view. And otherwise in the channel, yeah, it's going to be the big guys are going to dominate just like the tech guys, right? All the smaller, like Evolve is kind of a niche company, you know, it's Cisco and Avaya and all these guys, Microsoft takeovers. It's hard for newer players to come in. So there's less variety in the ecosystem. And uh, and the lower end for the sales business, of course, it's just going to get automated. It's all going to be AI driven. So there won't be any human to human contact for that. So the low end resellers are probably going to go away, just like the low skilled agents and contact centers, you know, are going to go away because they that can be automated. Right. Right. So this speaks to another topic altogether, which you call like, you know, the digital divide,
0: Mm. right.
1: That's going to determine, I hate to say it economically, the winners and losers going forward. And, uh, um, yeah, you better have good tech skills. You know, it's going to be very difficult to create long-term employment value, anything without that. So,
0: yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think there's, With all the automation and everything that's happening, I think the interesting part is, and and this is the whole reason the channel exists in the first place, is like, you still, just, just like what you do as an analyst, there still has to be, and there will, I think, always be a need for somebody to translate or mediate between, like, the technology and the buyer. And I think, you know, the buyers don't always have time. In fact, they rarely have the time because they're so focused on pulling the levers and pushing the buttons every day of finding out, you know, and keeping up on the new technologies and like what's, you know, how can they, just like I was saying earlier, they're tasked with, you know, moving forward their their companies um, in a more strategic technological way. But there's always got to be somebody in the middle there. And I don't think we're going to be able to automate that. You know, even with generative learning, like you still, and and yeah, this is probably a bigger topic in general. But like, somebody still has to translate that. And I, I think AI in general, people, I think people get get really freaked out by it. But at the end of the day, it's 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 learning. It's it's basically like so. I think, I saw something. It was like a a giant copycat. It was like a, a copycat machine or something like that. You know, it's like somebody still has to translate it. And people still have to, you know, regardless of of how fancy and and forward-thinking AI gets, somebody has to translate that, you know? And and if nobody is around to, like, put that information to use, then it's almost like the AI isn't going to matter, you know? And Unless it starts building, you know, machines, and then Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back and, you know... (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: once it takes over, um, you don't have any choice, but to trust it. And, you know, one of the basic terms in this whole, especially chat GPT area is this concept of black box versus white box. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. that, but basically black box model is how we consume most of what chat GPT gives us, which is basically it doesn't explain anything. It just, you have to take it at face value. It doesn't break it down, doesn't cite the sources, doesn't tell you how it came to the conclusion. Right. Whereas the white box model, again, if you're a data scientist, this is what you do all day long, but white box model is if you need accountability, say, how the hell am I going to trust what you just gave me? Um, you need, you need sources. You do say, well, how did you get that? Who did you talk to? What did you exclude in your search is? you know, all the various forms of bias that humans input into their AI models. Is that showing up? You know, why Why? Why is this buyer always a white guy? You know, why, where is, the, you know, it just doesn't reflect reality. So mm-hmm. who's, you know, all of those kind of things that, that can really, they're subtle and they can undo a lot of it. We did, um, I mentioned this conference I was at last week. I did a chat GPT ask me anything session where I had a few three chat GPT um, uh, platforms open. And I said, okay, guys, let's put it to the test. And these are geeky guys, right? So we ask some general questions, you know, how do I conserve energy in my home? And we ask it and it tells us, but then they get to some more specific things about, you know, there was an outage in 19, you know, sorry, there was an outage in 2021 in this County. Why did it happen? Then they get really specific. Right. And in like in like two seconds, it, it gives you like chapter and verse of the whole story. And they look at it like, uh oh. I said, <laughs> Guys, you're toast. <laughs> you like like and again, because they, they're living it. They can tell you right away if it's if it's legit, if it's honest, if it's accurate, right? That kind of thing. And I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like what they call the Turing test in AI, mm-hmm. right? How do you prove that it's, you know, can't if, if you can fool a human or fool you or or inform a human. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that passes the test. So yeah, there's a lot of that stuff to watch for. So I agree about that, that human element. It's like, I don't know, I'm kind of old school, but this like concept of Carvana, you know, the auto vending machine. Can you really buy a car sight unseen? Like I, 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 that's unfathomable to me. Right. But you know, with today's technology, I hate to say it, it's so addictive and sexy and comfortable it can train you to do just about anything if you're not really, you know, putting up some walls. So yeah, I guess, you know, but I don't know if I'm going to make like potentially the biggest investment of my life. Am I really just gonna click and buy? I don't know. I I So again,
0: (laughs) yeah, it's, it is weird. I heard somewhere that like auto manufacturers are reducing the amount of dealerships or, or like, like they're not opening new dealerships but i think they're like scaling back the number of dealerships and i've i've had a few friends over the last couple of years that like if they want to buy a new car they have to order it so it's almost the same sort of concept as carvana because yeah i mean it is it's not i, mean, I don't know it's it's obviously a used car versus a new car but it, it's interesting like how consumers allow dealers or like manufacturers how they allow them to operate you know it's like we don't necessarily have to say it's okay that the big auto manufacturers don't allow us to go into a store and buy a new car like but obviously there's demand and the market shows that this is the way that they want to buy it's just it's interesting how you know
1: it is the the buying preferences change and like look at tesla right i mean I remember again some some smart grid conferences I've been to over the years you know just like AT&T and Verizon fought like hell to make sure that the likes of Vonage um uh Skype could not become established in the market they threw up so many roadblocks cuz they did not want them in the club right cuz no this is we we're the telecom guys you're mm-hmm. the upstarts and the same thing in the auto industry when the EV thing started to happen the big three made damn sure Tesla is not going to be allowed to use our dealer network because that's our channel to market. That's how it goes, and to make sure these guys never get big, we'll shut them out. We'll form a you know whatever you want to call it consortium. You know <laughs> this is collusion, of course. But again, you see a threat. So what does Tesla do? I think it's great marketing, right? They 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 buy retail space in shopping malls. That's right. right. <laughs> put the cars there, and you go buy that you got to see it and touch it and smell it and all that stuff. And, you know, it doesn't take much to see a Tesla to say, I want that. Right. (laughs) It's something you're right. So they've proven that that traditional, again, that old school distribution model of the dealership isn't the only way. And yes, buyer preferences have changed. And if you can tap into that, you know what you, you, you can win. I'm not saying you will, but, um, and those guys are now catching up and dealer model is so expensive and just like the channels for the low end guys who were just reselling, they're going to automate that to keep the cost down as much as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of not, not, nothing stays still for sure with this stuff.
0: Is that something that like you were researching when you were at Frost and Sullivan, like at the time, what, what, uh, how consumers were buying things back then, back in the early 2000s? Was oh, that something that you were looking into?
1: No, no, no. When you work for an analyst firm and you have a coverage area, your world is really specific. And my Mm. world was tracking shipments of media gateways. Mm. So that's all I did, media gateways and uh, media servers and uh, session border controllers, all hardware. There was no software back then. Mm. So our job, as most analysts are, we're, we're there to report market size, market share. And you do that by getting the shipment numbers from the vendors, You know, how many ports did you ship? What was your price point? And then you talk to all the vendors, you add it up, you get a model. So that's what's called bottom up. You get it from, you know, all the main sources and then you can report on market share, market size, all that kind of thing. So that's that's a very kind of, you know, it's a very granular way of looking at things. I'm more of a strategy guy. So when you talk about those other things, buying preferences, that's the stuff I find much more interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's why I can, as an independent, I can do a lot more of those kinds of uh, research.
0: Yeah. And I always think about like the impact that say a, uh, Amazon has had on the marketplace too. how that might be similar to, you know, the way that companies buy technology. I'm always trying to find some sort of correlation there because as a consumer of like, household things or just you know all the stuff that you buy on amazon do you think that is going to sort of catch up to the business world and how it leaders or c levels initiate technology changes and like do you think there there will be a correlation there at some point or some sort of like
1: there can there can be and it's really interesting you know in our world zach i think it I, i think you have to look differently at hardware versus software so when everything is SaaS and it's a you know consumable pro, uh, offering, I, th- I don't think you can go that route so easily because there are so many issues about integrations and implementation and, yeah. you know, making all the services work. But if we go to that, once you go to that, you know, MRR model, you know, you're just buying a, basically, it's like an annuity, right? It's just a revenue stream that you're selling and the technology is very hands-off. It's just hosted in a cloud or a data center somewhere and it's on demand. That's it. Now, the hardware stuff, though, I think is much more interesting and probably more amenable to an Amazon-type model because now you're selling SKUs. You can call SaaS, you know, contact center seats SKUs, I guess, but it's not a product. So when you talk to the Logitechs of the world, I mean, they have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of endpoints of models that are Obviously business to business, you know, workplace, contact center, but of course consumer related too. And when you're talking about that kind of end of the business, absolutely you know, you can automate that channel for the most efficient way very easily. And there's no reason why Amazon and you know you can open up your own superstore. Even you know, even like the Grangers of the world, right, mm-hmm. who sell industrial supplies, there's no reason like what is it, like CDW well why they, they you know they they can have really effective like online marketplaces right where they just make it really easy to buy oh i need you know 150 headsets for my contact centers right i need you know uh, 200 webcams for my remote workers right Th- that's great now the some of the hardware vendors are kind of trying to fight back with this like uh what do you call it DAS model devices as a service mm-hmm. somehow creating that into a uh, you know, a leased rather than buy kind of situation, right? right? Just keep your desk set for half a year and they'll replace it with a new one. Okay, I guess you can do that too.
0: For evolve IP, we've been um, trying to figure out, you know, is there some sort of play with the VAR community, which is sort of like what you're talking about with the CDWs and the distributors and stuff like that. A little bit different, but, you know, same vein. And yeah, it is it is interesting thinking about the the shift to you know cloud computing or saas in general and we've been trying to you know trying to come up with some sort of way that we can break into the var community because you know the, the var community is very large and vast right and then it's sort of like adjacent to the you know indirect sales or partner community so but the problem is is you know, they go from selling physical devices to now we're trying to say, you know, well, here's this cloud model or here's this MRR model. So it, it's just interesting to think about like how to break into these different markets as uh, as a supplier, according to what the market demands, and wh- what is you know what does that mean for us as a as a supplier moving forward? You know, what's going to be the best um, uh, avenue for us to go to market. And I, and I know that's a lot of what you do a lot of times with suppliers is like those go to market strategies. So like, what's your sort of bold prediction about like where the market's moving for suppliers?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think like, like a lot of things you gotta, it certainly isn't like a monolithic approach anymore. Um, one of the vendor events I was at recently, they talked about their go to market. And I think they identified, I think it was like 11 different types of routes to market. So like partnering with BPOs, for example. And so you certainly have to be, you have to be, I wouldn't say creative, but you certainly have to be open to considering new paths to market in addition to the conventional ones. Um, for for two reasons. First of all, because these other paths, other paths are emerging because of how technology makes it possible for these things to happen. And the other thing too, is that the existing channels, um, as you say, some of them can be very hard to break into um, and are just too saturated, it's just too difficult. So um, the tools are there, like with all of this, I wouldn't necessarily say AI, but certainly I mentioned earlier, like no code, low code, you know, you can certainly create your own platforms pretty easily. Getting the reach of course is the hard thing, but. I think the more important thing is just how do you think out of the box about, okay, what are some of the other ways that my customers, end customers will want to buy from me? What channels will they trust? And some of that is just really researching your buyers directly and finding out from them, you know, present them some options. And here are like 10 different ways you could buy these products. Let's talk about each one and, you know, how you view them. What would lead you to use this approach more than that would you be open to new approaches and there's always going to be new and better ways of doing things it's a little bit of like the way the contact center now has to evolve to including digital channels in the mix right before it was just voice and email maybe a little bit of video but now when your inquiries are coming in over whatever social and linkedin and facebook you, you have to have a way you got to engage where the customers are so You're reluctantly being forced to adopt these new channels and communicating with customers is no different than buying from customers uh, or selling to customers. So yeah, I, there's no like single answer to this stuff. And uh, frankly, I think the ones who come out who are innovative enough, you know, can get an advantage over their competitors. If they can somehow unearth a new way to, um, you know whatever is easier and the easiest and most cost effective for the buyer you know they're going to they're going to want to listen and maybe some of that comes with you know there might be like new ways of adding value to just selling a product you know maybe it's some post implementation advice or participation in uh you know maybe you have like a like a a little club of select customers you you know, it's like an advisory council, right? That you get in ongoing input of how to make your products better. I think there's ways that, you know, like anything, we're all consumers. We all want to feel valued by the brands we buy from, right? So you think about well, what's going to motivate them. The buying, like the selling and the buying is still largely, I don't know, a lot of it's transactionally based, you know, some of it, yes, is relationship based, but you know, I, I think there's ways to kind of elevate that transaction-based kind of selling to these other things that might make it just feel a little more special to them that they're not getting from the other guys, right?
0: Mm, that's well put. No, well, I
1: can tell the wheels are turning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they are. And and uh, just like we mentioned at the beginning, um, this is probably going to be a, uh, an ongoing series with you and I. So I think we'll, we should probably call it there for the day and uh, is this? I mean, there was a lot there, and I'm going to probably have to rewatch this just to <laughs> just to digest everything we went through. But it's been a lot of fun, John. Um, do you have any uh, sort of closing thoughts that you wanted to throw out there, or uh, should we save those for the next time?
1: For closing thoughts is, is you know, you're, 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 you're seeing this happen in real time, folks. So I think, uh, yeah, I agree, Zach, there's more for us to talk about. And I think for the, you know, your, your viewers out there and your customers and your partners, you know, the tech, the tech story just never stands still, right? There's always going to be something new coming. So don't get too comfortable. You know, the the guys who are tied to the legacy model can only carry it so far. So um if this is where you get your inspiration and innovation from great, keep coming back. Cause I think that's, that's what makes it interesting. Otherwise you just, you're just buying and selling and, uh, but there's more, I think there's more to it in this business.
0: Agreed. All right. And uh, do you want to let everybody know how they can find you on all your socials and website and stuff?
1: Uh, well, just the real simple one is just get to my website, uh, jarnoldassociates.com. J. Arnold and yeah, you, once you're there, you'll see, yes, I'm on LinkedIn, not using Twitter so much now, but LinkedIn is the main social. And then, yes, I publish a monthly newsletter, a monthly podcast, and, We've got some fun video clips of our band up there too. And yeah, so I blog and, you know, do all the normal things an analyst does. And uh, it's all easy to find on my site.
0: That's great. And where's the next um, speaking engagement that you have?
1: Actually, right here in Toronto, September 7th. So a a cousin organization to SCTC that I mentioned earlier, kind of a Canadian group that's in the same boat. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at their event here in Toronto. So it's like a Canadian networking event.
0: Excellent. But, uh, all right.
1: Yeah. Well. yeah. We'll talk more later. The fall, I'll be all over the place.
0: Many, That's great. Every,
1: every continent, I think. So. Wow. Busy time. Okay. We <laughs> suspense.
0: That's right. Well, hopefully you can pencil me in for another episode, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it figured out. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.
1: All right. Thanks, all.
0: That's a wrap on this episode of the Channel Champions Podcast. You can find this and all our episodes on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite streaming platforms. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, guests, or topics, please reach out to us. We appreciate you coming along with us on this journey and hope to be back for the next episode. Until then, stay tuned, stay connected, and stay inspired.